Everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Growing Patriots podcast. I hope you liked last week's episode about what life was like for colonial kids. This week, we're going to keep talking about what colonial life was like, but we're going to talk about food. What was it like to get food and cook food and eat food and have meals together? All of those good things. So with some questions is my friend, five-year-old Joy. Hi, my name is Joy and I live in Virginia. Thanks for joining us. What are your questions? What kind of dishes did they have? Did they play with the Who set the table? Did people cook their own food? What did kind of food people ate all of the time? Did they go working shopping for food? Those are all really good questions. What kind of dishes did they have? Did people say a prayer at mealtime? Who set the table? Did people grow their own food? And with that food, what were the foods that people ate all the time? And did they go grocery shopping to get their food? We're going to find all of that out in just a little bit. When your mom or dad makes dinner at your house, I bet sometimes they use a cookbook. In the 1700s, though, there weren't really a lot of American cookbooks. But here, one of my friends is going to share something from one of the very first ones. Hi, I'm Becky. I'm 15, and I'm from Texas. This is from The Art of Cookery, Made Plain and Easy by Hannah Glass, one of the first cookbooks in colonial America. It was originally published in 1747. In the foreword, Glass wrote, To the Reader. I think I have here attempted a branch of cookery which nobody has yet thought worth their while to write upon. But as I have but seen and found by experience that the generality of servants are wanting in that point, therefore I have taken it upon me to instruct them in the best manner I am capable. And I dare say that every servant who can read will be capable of making a tolerable good cook. And those who have the least notion of cookery cannot miss being very good ones. If I have not wrote in the high polite style, I hope I shall be forgiven. For my intention is to instruct the lower sort, and therefore must treat them in their own way. For example, when I bid them a lard of fowl, if I should bid them large with lard lardoons, they would not know what I meant. But when I say they must lard with little pieces of bacon, they know what I mean. So, in many other things in cookery, the cooks have such a high way of expressing themselves that the poor girls are at a loss to know what they what they mean. She ends the foreword with, I shall say no more. Only hope my book will answer the ends I intend it for, which is to improve the servants and save the ladies a great deal of trouble. I know that's not really how we talk anymore, so that might be kind of hard to understand. But what Mrs. Glass was saying was that she wrote a cookbook not really for the moms and dads, but for their servants who were going to be cooking for them. And she thought that maybe the servants wouldn't understand very fancy words, so she wrote it in a pretty plain way. That way, she thought everybody would be able to understand and cook really great meals. But the reason that she did that, she says, is to make life easier for the ladies, not really the servants, 
but she thought that it would be easier if the ladies didn't have to explain everything to them. So she wrote the book in a way everybody could understand. Of course, not everybody had servants, though. Let's find out what it was like to have a meal for a typical American family in the colonial times. So joining us, I have two wonderful guests, Keith Staveley and Kathleen Fitzgerald. They are culinary historians, which means that they study the history of food, and they've even written books about it. They're going to come answer all of Joy's questions. Are you ready? Joy's first question was, what kind of dishes did they use in the colonial era? Okay, well, I'm going to start with the answer. Um, In early America, at first people used wood, uh, carved in the form of shallow bowls most often. These were called trenchers, and that was what they used to hold their food. These wooden bowls and sometimes cups, too, were called treen or treenware. Um, And often many people around the table ate out of the same trencher. Yuck. (laughs) (laughs) But they did. They they didn't have much uh, in the way of, um, you know, household goods, so they ate out of the same trencher. Um, As settlers got a bit wealthier in the American colonies, They'd add to their treenware. They'd have more treenware. And eventually they were able to add pewter bowls and plates as well. Um, pewter is made of it's um, an alloy, a metal made of um, tin with some lead. And in early days, lead was um, added. A little bit of lead was added to the tin to make it stronger and more pliable. Um, and eventually, sometimes uh, copper was added as well. In those days, people didn't know to avoid uh, using lead to cook and eat with. Sure. Um, in some, in some uh, wealthy families, eventually in time, this is, you know, as the 18th century went on, um, they added silver um, plates and cups and utensils to their collection of household goods. In the early years of settlement, though, people rarely had forks. Um, oh. They'd eat with knives and spoons. Yeah, they only had knives um, and spoons. Um, sometimes made of of pewter, sometimes of silver to eat with. But they often also ate with their hands. Yuck again. Well, it's just the way it was a common practice. Um, It was really only in the later 18th century that forks were used. Um, In general, in the 17th century, in the early years of settlement, in the 1600s, most American colonials had very few um, household goods like dishes in their houses. But as the 18th century went on, there was more wealth um, built up because farms got more prosperous, and also there was more trade, um, you know, from from far away from England and Europe. And people began to get fancier home goods, including pewter knives and forks and um, spoons, cups, plates, bowls, things like that. And they also added something called stoneware, which is a, a, a kind of inexpensive form of pottery. And eventually they had porcelain dishes, which were the fanciest kind. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, did people say a prayer at meals like sometimes we do today? Uh, well, yes, but that's only a small part of their kind of religious dimension of their lives. Um, many people had come over here, especially in New England where we live, um, in order to be able to have freer expression of their religious beliefs, many of them back in England, uh, they were often called dissenters because they had differences of opinion with the 
established uh, the official religion, the Church of England. Uh, they pray frequently. They combine prayers with reading the Bible often every day. Uh, there are also uh, formal days of um, both um, penance when they felt they had to atone for things, ways they had been bad, and days of thanksgiving when they would gather in their churches to hear sermons and to pray for their communities when they felt things that were going well and they wanted to thank the God that they worshipped for that. That was actually the origin of what we now call our Thanksgiving holiday was these periodic days of Thanksgiving, but they weren't particularly tied to having a big meal at first. That kind of only developed as time went on. Um, uh, so, uh, so prayers might indeed be said before meals, but that was not the most important kind of prayer that they did. Um, often there would be morning or evening family Bible reading, um, and there would be prayers along with that. Okay. Um, and who would set the table? Um, well, that's an interesting question because there weren't dining rooms or even specific rooms called kitchens in early colonial times. So um, there often weren't tables set up permanently in households. Tables were often boards that were set up when the family needed to prepare or eat food and taken down and out of the way at other times. In the main room of the house, there was a big hearth, and it was made up of a deep fireplace and space in front where large cooking pots and smaller pans and skillets were placed um, on stands or hung from iron cranes and chains. You might have seen uh, some of these in, in historic houses. And so they, the, cha the chains and the cranes were so that um, food could be moved closer to or farther away from the fire. And there were also um, areas where food was prepared on these tables or boards, and when the food was ready, the board would be cleared, and that would be where people would eat. Um, often the women and children of the family stood up around the board to eat, and the mm. father of the family was the only person who had a chair to sit down in. Good, good setup, right? <laughs> It's very different from now. Um, in time, um, benches and stools were added, and sometimes sometimes the stools were just tree trunks for other family members to sit down. But we have to remember that families were really large back in those days, and they included many children and adults. It wasn't unusual, for instance, for families to have eight or ten children or more. And, and that was true, even though they might have had many cases where their children had died very young. They still were so so fertile and had so, had children so often that they would still have a lot even though right. death and children died. Yeah, was, they did. was a reality too. Yeah, they had large families um, and most households along with their children and the parents households included a lot of other people like farmhands and um, household help and even older relatives and aunt or grandmother might live with the family um, and they all ate around this board or table as they got wealthier in the 18th century, American colonials built an extension or an L in the back of their houses often where the kitchen was moved to. And this was because they thought the smells of cooking were better kept separate from where the family spent most of their time in the, in the main room. And then gradually, as the 18th century went on and people got wealthier, they began to add what they called a dining room. And it was a new thing in the 18th century. And also they added tables and chairs made especially for the dining room. So as to the question of who set the table, everyone had many tasks in the household, including the youngest children. 
So they might get out the treenware or the pewter plates and cups and in the wealthier families, maybe the silver. And they might help wash up after meals, although the household help also did that. Um, young children in the family would also, um, children really from almost the age of five or six, right through their teen years before they themselves grew up and had their own homes, would also help in the fields and with the barn animals. And they would also help with household work like spinning and weaving clocks. Mm-hmm. Wow. They were busy and they worked hard. <laughs> they were. What what kinds of food um, were common for people to eat all the time? Um, well, this is a really great question because it's quite different. That that's, makes it interesting to learn about things that are different from what we're familiar with. Sure. Um, so as we've been kind of saying through the answers to the other questions, most people lived on farms and grew most of the foods they ate. Uh, sometimes there would be a surplus of these crops or, or their livestock, their farm animals, and they would sell them in order to buy things like sugar or molasses or spices that they couldn't grow. And we'll go into that a little bit more um, a little later. Uh, but mostly they ate the foods that they grew themselves. Um, and in, in um, many of the settled parts of the country, um, all sort of up and down the East Coast throughout the colonial period, and especially in New England where wheat didn't grow very well, uh, but corn and and another grain called rye grew better. People ate a lot of uh, cornmeal pottage, like it's kind of a hot cereal dish, and they they would eat that at almost every meal. The whole idea that we would have these different meals at different times of day with different kinds of food at each um, at each meal, that was really a product of much greater wealth and really in, in total form a product of our modern period of, in, you know, manufacturing and everything when, um, you know, you could produce all those different kinds better. But anyway, um, back to what they did then, um, they also baked a kind of bread made of cornmeal and rye flour, uh, um, which is often called rye and Indian. And the reason for that name was that in colonial days, what we now call corn was called Indian corn or simply Indian um, because the settlers knew that the native people were the ones who first grew corn. So families might eat corn cornmeal mush, calling it hasty pudding, as it has been had been called in England too, but it was often made with oats or wheat because of instead of corn. Um, in, in the colonies, hasty pudding or pottage was made simply of water or broth and cornmeal. They also made cornmeal or into baked or fried cakes called Johnny Cakes, and they ate whole cooked corn called hominy or samp. Many farm, again, and many farm families ate samp made with milk or water morning, noon, and night, very similar to the uh, hasty pudding. Mm-hmm. Sometimes if, if things were going well, they would have butter or molasses to add to their samp. Uh, most families also raised, raised hogs. That was their most common form of livestock and would have some preserved pork on hand, uh, the legs are called hams, uh, and they would add this to their meals during the year. They also grew beans in their fields, which they made into bean porridge and added the pork to that. They also would often throw cornmeal into the bean porridge, and this resulted in a dish that was not that different from the native pe- one of the native people's basic food foods called uh, succotash. They also grew apples and dried them to put in pies and puddings. If they lived near the shore, they might eat fish, lobsters, 
and clams. Um, and water diet was very plain. Most average Americans, because they had their own small farms where they kept farm animals and grew crops, ate much better than the average person back home in England. Wow. So now we can go on to the question that you asked about <laughs> grocery shopping growing your own. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So as to grocery shopping, um, you know, as Keith was saying, the colonial Americans really relied on the food that they grew on their own farms. And um, as he also said, they, they lived mostly on farms. So what they did for um, grocery shop, what we would think of grocery shopping was really very different. First of all, they'd exchange food items with their neighbors. Um, for instance, if a neighbor had a big harvest of corn and you had a big harvest of apples, maybe you would trade some of each. Um, or if a neighbor helped you build your barn, say, you might pay them with some of your salt pork or your hams. Um, but if you wanted special things that couldn't be gotten locally, things like sugar or molasses or um, people liked pepper um, as a spice and cinnamon and they liked tropical fruits like lemons, then um, they'd get these things at the nearest village store. But again, instead of going there with cash, which they didn't have a lot of currency, uh, you know, money, mm -hmm. paper money or coins. Instead, they'd go and they'd trade or barter, as it was called, with the shopkeeper, and they'd exchange their surplus um, farm goods, things like, um, you know, cornmeal or whatever, if you had more of that or preserved pork, more than you could eat. You'd exchange that for the things you wish to get. Um, but these were still rarities for most families into the 18th century. Uh, so mostly people didn't go shopping for food. They they went to their own supplies. Um, they made and grew and preserved almost everything they ate. Um, you know, they they had food preserved all throughout their houses in their attics and cellars. They kept um, dried apples and they kept potatoes and turnips and um, pork in brine, which is kind of water and salt, and dried um, dried hands in the chimney place. And they even made their own clothing. So, for instance, their sheep provided the wool for woolen clothing, and they grew flax in the summer and spun the flax into linen for summer clothing. I might add one thing, too, on the question about what they ate on a regular basis. It might be interesting to kit a little bit. Um, every, uh, at certain times during each year, they would slaughter some of their animals, especially if they were animals that they used for helping to do the farm work. If they were too old to be much help with that anymore, they would slaughter them to eat. Um, and uh, unlike today, um, they would eat every part of the animal. Um, there wasn't any part that they wouldn't try to figure out some way to cook it and eat it, including you know, the guts, the kidneys, the livers, the, you know, all these things that we consider kind of not very appetizing. Yuck today. again. Yeah, <laughs> but they liked, they really liked it. They, they enjoyed they, it. They liked it, but they also needed, in order to have enough for the whole year, uh, they needed to, you know, be, you know, as careful with their resources as possible. Sure. And turn much of it as possible into food. Another thing that happened with these livestock slaughters is that um, there would be, w when the animal was fresh 
freshly uh, slaughtered, there would be more fresh meat of one kind or another than the family itself could um, could themselves eat. And that would be especially a time when there would be a lot of trading with their neighbors where they would trade with, you know, a family that maybe wasn't doing a slaughter right at that time with, you know, some of their extra meat from the slaughter and would get some kind of item that the neighbor had that they needed in exchange for it. And, you know, another another point about the, the, the meat eating, you know, it was mostly pork. They had a little bit of beef, but um, uh, a lot of um, a lot of cattle were dairy cattle, and they used those to, to you know, to have cheese, which was easier to preserve than milk. They had some milk, but more cheese. But a lot of the meat that they ate, they really enjoyed. So, you know, some of our foods that descend from these foods, we might think it's yucky back then, but it was really tasty um, stuff. And things like sausage come from this tradition of using all the scraps of meat Mm -hmm. and making it into something delicious. And our deli meat comes from using all kinds of bits of scraps of meat and blending them together to make deli meat like, um, you know, I don't know, uh, bologna or to make hot dogs. You know, it's really the same tradition of using up all the scraps of meat and all the parts of the animal um, for um, nutritious foods. So, um, you know, they had they had those kinds of foods, too, that they enjoyed. Sure. Now, what are some other things about, um, you know, colonial food that might really surprise kids today? Uh, um, I, I think, it, you know, our overall point is that it would be a surprise maybe how much um, they relied on the same foods over and over again. Like if, if a kid thought about this, you know, okay, you get up in the morning and you're a little bit hungry and you have stamp, which is kind of a hulled corn um, porridge. And maybe, if you're lucky, it's made with milk, but often it's made with water and there's nothing sweet. Um, And then at lunch you're a little hungry and you have a little more. Maybe there's a little shreds of pork in it. And at dinner you have a little bit more. And that maybe go on for four or five days. And then if you're lucky you get a piece of rye and Indian bread which is made of, it's a very heavy, dense bread. It's not light. It's dark in color. It's made with corn and rye. And those are, are, um, grains that don't, don't rise very well with yeast. So it's very dense and heavy. But Mm -hmm. people were hungry and it seemed delicious to them. Um, the other probably surprise that I can think of is that when they had a feast and they had turkeys, which they sometimes had poultry too, of course, um, the turkeys were really small. They were like the size of our chickens now. They might be seven, eight, hmm. at most nine. So on the table for Thanksgiving, um, you would never just have a one big turkey because there was no such thing as a 22-pound turkey. You might have turkey, but you also would have a chicken pie, and you might have a, a, a you know piece of beef and, and some ham. Or mutton. Mutton was mm, very common. Sheep. Yeah. Uh, mutton was much more common than it is now. Um, So, yeah, there were many things that were very different, you know. But, you know, there wouldn't have been much, um, the whole idea of the the kids saying, oh, I don't like that, I don't want it, and, you know, the parents saying, well, you're going to sit here until you eat it. That wouldn't have come up too much because (laughs) there just wasn't that many choices. Um, And um, people were glad to get, you know, enough to kind of, 
enough to eat to sustain them. And the kids kind of learned this lesson pretty early on. And, and that's also why, because there was scarcity in the early years, and eventually there was, there was what's called subsistence, which means they had enough, but they didn't have a whole lot of extra. That's why when there was a, um, a harvest, the tradition began of having a feast, because that was the time of year when finally you could really have a lot on your table for one day. And that was a really special thing. It wasn't an everyday thing. So the fact that you did have a table with maybe some pies made with, you know, crust made with some wheat, and maybe some bread made with wheat, and, and lots of food for a day or two, um, feasting in that sense was really a treat. Because generally you had enough to eat. Americans considered themselves lucky compared to most Europeans and, and English people. But you had enough to eat, but you didn't have extra. Wow, yeah, that's quite different from today where we sometimes clean out our fridge and even throw away food. Yeah, they, they would not have had that idea. They preserved, as Keith was saying about the parts of the animals that they slaughtered on their farms, they preserved every little bit. Um, they, they also um, preserved all kinds, you know, apples were dried. They did have pies. They loved pies, even more than cakes, because pies could be preserved for a long time. So they would have very you know, dried berries that they'd make into pies. But the amount of sugar would be so much less than what we have now because sugar was a real luxury. It was very expensive. So the pie might be sweetened with cider or a little bit of molasses, which is cheaper than, than granulated sugar, or just a tiny bit of sugar. And another thing about pies that might be a little bit um, of a surprise um, is that originally pies weren't really um, primarily sweet or desserts or made primarily with fruits or pumpkins or things like that. They were mostly made with, um, initially, they, they were a way to preserve meat and poultry. Um, and that was the main thing that, that was put in them. And, in fact, that was that so much was that the case that pie crust, one of the names for a pie crust, was a coffin. Oh. Because you had, you had dead flesh inside oh my gosh um, yeah yeah <laughs> it's meant to preserve something inside that's right so <laughs> and and you know we still have a few remnants of of um of these kinds of traditions our mince pie originally mince pie which you sometimes see on the thanksgiving table and the christmas table but you don't see much else but mince pie was a very uh you know, much more popular food in the 18th century, 17th century, and, and even into the 19th century. And mince pie meant what the word comes from. It meant minced meat, meaning the meat was chopped up fine. It was probably some leftover meat that had been cooked. And then it was mixed with something sweet like raisins and apples, maybe a little bit of cider or sugar. Now, mince pie means mostly a pie made with dried apples and raisins. And people don't realize that there's maybe a little bit of um, beef in there or even mm -hmm. lard. Um, but that originally the, the proportions were just the opposite. It was mainly minced meat pie. Um, and that was a way to enjoy the, that little scraps of meat that you might not find another use for. But it was also a way to preserve the pie a little bit, to preserve the food a little bit longer. Wow. Yeah, we've, we've come a long way. <laughs> <laughs> In some ways, um, we think we've come a long way, and, and some of it is good, and some of it is worth maybe thinking about. You yeah. Know, because 
children had a real role in families. They they really needed the children um, to help out in order for the the family was a unit that had to work together if they were going to survive. And there's something really nice about that too. There is. There is absolutely. Well, thank you both so much for joining me this morning. This was wonderful. Really well, enjoyed this. It's our, our pleasure. Thank you for asking us. Yeah, we, re- we enjoyed it. Wasn't that fun? I loved learning all about colonial food. You know, now, when we meet someone for lunch or dinner, that's a big part of our lives, you know, who we share our table with, and it always has been. That's why it's so interesting to find out how people used to eat. It's a big part of how their lives were. So let's talk about what we did learn. Today, we have all kinds of special dishes for different foods, but back then, especially at the beginning, they really had a wooden trencher, which was kind of like a shallow bowl, and they mostly all shared one, and sometimes would even eat with their fingers. It was only later that people had pottery, and for really fancy houses, there was porcelain. Now, as you might remember from the beginning of the podcast, religion was a big part of why people came to the New World, so people prayed a lot. There wasn't a specific dinnertime prayer like a lot of people have now, but people definitely prayed at mealtimes. It wasn't the most important prayer of the day, but it was certainly one of them. Joy asked us who set the table, but it turns out that most people didn't even have a dining room table in the beginning of the colonial era. There were no kitchens or dining rooms, but they did bring out a board to eat on when it was time. Women and children didn't even have chairs usually, only dad. Later they added benches and stools, but they weren't very fancy. In fact, sometimes people just sat on tree trunks. Later, when people started adding space in their houses for cooking and for a dining room, that's when they got tables and chairs. So then you start to wonder who was setting the table. Well, for houses that had servants, the servants would do a lot of that. But for other houses, it was usually the kids. Eating was a lot different from now. People mostly ate whatever they could grow and ate the same things over and over again. There were things like cornmeal and rye bread. There were pies, but they weren't as sweet as today. People also ate a lot of beans and pork and apples, and if you were lucky enough to live near the coast, you could have things like fish and lobster. You might get tired of eating the same things all over again, but like they said, there were no grocery stores. You just had to eat what you could get. So usually that was what you could grow, and if you needed something else, maybe you could trade with somebody, somebody that had extra food of their own, and you could trade what you had for what they had to get something new. If you wanted something really special like sugar or spices, you would have to take a trip into town to go to the store, and you'd just trade there. But mostly, people just felt lucky to have enough food to eat to keep them full. That's much better than people had it in England and Europe, and they knew they were lucky. The idea of complaining about food or being bored of it or even throwing some away would have been just crazy to them. Isn't it something how much things have changed in just a couple hundred years? Well, that's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening and learning about colonial life and come back next week where we'll have another episode to dig into. Remember to head on over to iTunes to subscribe to the podcast, give it five stars and leave a review. 
For more resources like videos and coloring pages, and to learn more about me and the Growing Patriot books, you can visit growingpatriots.com. I'm also on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. My name is Growing Patriots on all three of those. It was great to have you along this week, and we'll see you next time. Bye. They freed us all from tyranny. We stand the thing for liberty. And they fought so we would be America, land of the free. America, land of the free.